invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this Lord's Day to our text as we return to Daniel, moving on to the next chapter, chapter 5. And we'll be focusing our attention upon verses 1 through 9 this Lord's Day. So Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over the, against the candlestick upon the plaster the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. How often do people challenge, and even dare Almighty God as if they were mightier than their Creator. They plan evil devices, in effect, and challenge Him to prevent them from going down their wicked way if He can. They sin with a high hand. They shake their fists in God's face and insult the Almighty, by their wicked deeds. I submit to you that's what's being done 
with the perversion of biblical marriage in the so-called Respect for Marriage Act that codifies into national law same-sex so-called marriages. It actually should be called the Destruction of Marriage Act, not the Respect for Marriage Act. It seeks to shake its fist in God's face, destroy God's institution of marriage, and in effect dares him to do anything about it. But he will do something about it. God will not be silent when we take such steps, whether as a nation or whether as individuals. You recall that Nebuchadnezzar wickedly challenged the Lord back in Daniel 3.15. He had built that image and commanded all to worship the image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow before the image. And in verse 15, uh, he in effect issues this challenge to God Almighty. He dares God when he says, Now if ye be ready that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And notice what this challenge, how he dares God. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Well, again, God accepted the challenge, the dare, as it were, and he humbled the king by appearing there in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, protecting them from all harm. Or you may recall Rabshakeh, who was the Assyrian general uh, for King Sennacherib, who likewise dared the Lord God in Isaiah chapter 36, verses 18 through 20. The forces of Assyria had surrounded Jerusalem, and there was Rabshakeh shouting to those upon the wall. And he said, Beware lest Hezekiah, that is, good King Hezekiah, persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. And once again, God accepted the dare, the challenge. And that night, he destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers while they slept in their camp. Even Israel, you recall, foolishly dared God after they had been delivered miraculously from Egyptian bondage and had crossed over the Red Sea on dry land as they wandered there in the wilderness and uh, did not have food, did not have water, 
And uh, they cried out according to Psalm 78, verses 19 through 22. Yea, they spake against God. They said, and here's the challenge. Here's the dare against God. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore the Lord, God accepted the challenge, and we read, Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Dear ones, it will never, ever go well for us if we dare God if we challenge God, if we transgress God's commandments and dare him, in effect, by our words and by our deeds to do anything about it, as if he is helpless, if we choose to transgress his laws and his commandments. You see, that's the height of foolishness. For the Lord will not remain silent forever. He may delay his judgment, his chastening, so as to give time to repent, to show us his mercy, but he will not be silent forever. That's what the end of the third commandment is talking about. When it says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. God will not be forever silent. God certainly did not hold King Belshazzar guiltless, as we shall see from our text today. God wasn't silent. God did show up in a mighty way. The main points from our text today are these. Belshazzar dares Almighty God at a drunken party in Daniel 5, 1 through 4. And the second main point, Almighty God crashes Belshazzar's drunken party in Daniel 5, verses 5 through 9. So the first main point, Belshazzar dares Almighty God at a drunken party. Notice once again, verses one through four, Daniel five. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the God, gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. 
From the last chapter, chapter 4 of Daniel, you recall how God humbled proud Nebuchadnezzar by taking him from one who had the mind of a man to one who had the mind of a beast for a season. And at the end of which Nebuchadnezzar praises, publicly praises God and his power and his sovereignty in verses 34 through 37 of Daniel 4. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will, in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom." An excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. And we're not given, I don't believe, sufficient evidence to draw perhaps a very firm conviction as to whether Nebuchadnezzar became a true believer in the Lord God. Don't read of any repentance per se, that he repented, that he um, turned away from his idols. Um, uh, so we don't know for sure. I certainly uh, would hope to, by God's grace alone, uh, to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, but there's no assurance that that was the case, that God's grace was worked within his heart other than just uh, this proclamation, which he had made similar kinds of proclamations earlier in the book of Daniel, but then returned to his pride, to his idolatry. Rather than learning from this event that happened to Nebuchadnezzar um, about 23 years uh, before this event in Daniel 5 concerning Belshazzar, it uh, doesn't appear that Belshazzar um, has learned anything uh, from what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he rather embarks upon an even greater folly against the Lord God Almighty. Belshazzar here is uh, called by Daniel uh, the king. And not only in this chapter, but uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, and in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. That's been a source of criticism uh, by skeptics, critics, uh, saying that the, the Bible has error, it's wrong because um, Belshazzar was not the king, his father, Nabonidus, was the king. 
And historians do record, uh, again, uh, that uh, ancient historians record that Nabonidus uh, was the king of Babylon at this time, uh, but that also he spent a lot of time um, pursuing his own adventures, his own pursuits, uh, and so he, he spent a lot of time away from Babylon. Uh, and it would appear uh, that during these long extended periods of time in which he was not present at Babylon, that his son, uh, Belshazzar, was made basically a co-regent uh, and served uh, as king in his absence. And so though the supreme kingship rested with the father, Nabonidus, uh, nevertheless, it's not inaccurate to say here that Belshazzar, uh, during the absence of his father, was the king of Babylon. One other objection that's raised uh, also by skeptics is that Nebuchadnezzar in verse 2 was called Belshazzar's father. Well, we've just noted that Nabonidus, uh, according to history, um, ancient history, was the father of uh, Belshazzar. And if that is the case, it nevertheless uh, doesn't make what is said here in Daniel 5.2 to be uh, inaccurate or wrong. Because uh, the word father in the Aramaic language can have a very broad meaning. It doesn't necessarily refer to a biological son, but uh, can a father can uh, uh, refer to uh, one uh, who is uh, related by way of blood, who is an ancestor uh, of them. So um, that's uh, true not only in Aramaic, uh, that's also true in Hebrew, where uh, Jesus is called the son of David, for example. Uh, not his biological son, but uh, again, because David was uh, an ancestor by way of blood. And so uh, it may be uh, that uh, Belshazzar was uh, the uh, posterity, may, maybe a, a generation or two uh, or more between Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belshazzar. But one other uh, use uh, of father uh, in the Aramaic language is, is that it may also refer to uh, a royal predecessor, even when there's not any direct bloodline, even when there's not any biological relationship. A predecessor, royal predecessor, a king who uh, has reigned before and is not related by way of blood to uh, a subsequent ruler, that ruler still may be referred to as his father that in the Aramaic language. It's also used in that sense. And so in either case, uh, there's not a uh, necessary discrepancy at all or an accurate way in which Daniel refers to Nebuchadnezzar being the father of uh, Belshazzar. The occasion and the timing of this uh, great feast uh, is puzzling indeed. Why? Because outside the walls of Babylon, 
There was the threat of imminent danger there in force were the Persian armies that had uh, conquered Assyria, uh, that uh, were now united, Persia and Media, to form the Medo-Persian Empire. There was Cyrus uh, to lead his forces against Babylon. Uh, again, the mightiest at that point in time, the mightiest empire, uh, and uh, was about, again, to take down Babylon itself. And so it seems very odd to be throwing a drunken party, in one sense, at this particular uh, period of time. He calls for a great drunken feast of which a thousand of his Chief lords and princes are invited, his concubines, his wives as well. Why did he throw a party uh, at that particular point in time? Well, let me suggest to you some possible reasons. Perhaps uh, Belshazzar, so trusted in the great walls of Babylon uh, to defend them against Cyrus, the Greek historian Herodotus, who was born about 50 years after uh, Daniel's death, writes that the walls that surrounded Babylon uh, were immense. They, the walls stretched 15 miles around in each direction, so that, again, it encompassed about 225 square miles of walls. Um, uh, uh, as far as territory that was encompassed. Those walls by Herodotus uh, stated to have been over 300 feet high. They are stated to have been 80 feet thick. The foundation of the walls was said to have been 35 feet deep. The city was furthermore protected by wide and deep canals and moats around the city, filled with water. Furthermore, Babylon had within its walls uh, sufficient food and water to last years that had been stored. Like the Titanic, Perhaps Belshazzar thought that Babylon was unsinkable. Perhaps, again, a second reason for putting confidence uh, in, uh, in uh, Babylon and uh, not uh, taking seriously the threat that was out there uh, was that they trusted, Belshazzar trusted in his gods to protect him against Cyrus. He later on in, in chapter five, he appeals to these gods. He worships and praises these gods in this drunken party. This drunken feast was called by Belshazzar 
probably to calm the fears and the anxieties of his lords and princes uh, that they need not fear Cyrus at all, for they were safe within the protective walls of Babylon. I would submit to you that this was a dare and a challenge against God's providence, that mere walls could protect them. Uh, no matter how high they were, no matter how thick they were, no matter how much food or water that there was within the city, it is in effect to challenge the Almighty God and His providence to tr put one's trust in those things rather than in God. You remember in Luke 12, the parable of the foolish rich man, landowner, that Jesus speaks of, uh, who prospered greatly. Uh, he filled up his barns and he says, what shall I do now? Well, I will build bigger barns. And he fills those barns up. And he says, uh, be at ease to his soul. Eat, drink, and be merry. Take it easy now. Not thinking at all about his own death. And in the parable, God says, Today thy soul is demanded of thee, and the man dies with all that he had put his confidence in by way of, by way of uh, supply and store, riches, more than sufficient food to take care of him for many years. And God demanded of him his life at that particular point in time. The Lord is teaching us we cannot put confidence, put that kind of confidence in the things that we have in this world. Certainly we can make preparations, and we ought to make preparations. Certainly we can provide as best as we're able to provide, but we, these are simply means uh, that, that we use. These are not the source of our protection and safety. It is God Almighty that is the source. And if we put our confidence in those things, then we, like Belshazzar, are testing. We are, like Belshazzar, daring God, as it were, challenging God. I've done this and I've done that. I've prepared here. Now, what can anybody do unto me? And so God's speaks to us today, not only to Belshazzar, but he speaks to us today not to put a false security in this world, whether as a nation in military power or in the economy or in a political party, not to put our confidence in those things. All such confidence, dear ones, God teaches, in his, teaches us in his word this confidence that's built upon sand. It will not withstand the plans of Almighty God. God likewise speaks to us individually or as families not to put our confidence in bank accounts, not to put our confidence in property, 
not to put our confidence in stored food or guns or preparations that we might make, even though, again, these may be means that God uses, they are not the source of our confidence. Our, our confidence must be in Almighty God. As the psalmist says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. In Psalm 124.8. And before we leave this section of this text, let's not uh, underestimate, dear ones, the power of alcohol, the power of drugs, to so dull our senses that we find ourselves in a situation where we speak foolishness, dare God, dare God in his providence. Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Doesn't forbid us from using wine. Doesn't say that it's unlawful to use alcoholic beverages, but it says, do not take it to an excess. Where again, our judgment is dulled. Where we cannot act responsibly, speak responsibly. Speak and act in a way so as to glorify God. Be not drunk with wine where is an excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Be controlled by God, not controlled by something else. And just by way of an example or an illustration, very practical, uh, to not drive or act safely when we are driving and behind the wheel, I submit to you, is to dare God to keep us safe. Likewise, to rebel against God and his commandments when we know what his commandments teach and yet to rebel against God's commandments is to dare God to do something about it. It's like, it's like uh, parents who tell their children, don't do this or do this, and the children basically thumb their noses at at their parents and say, I'm going to do it anyway. Are they not daring their parents to do something about it? And do we not do the same thing when God has given to us his commandments and we, as it were, rebel and thumb our nose at God? We're daring God to do something about it. And God's up to the challenge, believe me, as we will see. While in this drunken state, Belshazzar commanded that the holy vessels that had been taken by King Nebuchadnezzar from the temple in Jerusalem and kept in Babylon there in the temple of Marduk, he commanded those vessels be brought to this drunken party and that those vessels be used to drink uh, their, their wine from as they continued in a drunken stupor, um, again, daring God 
uh, daring God, as we will see. This is a further dare of God. They had first dared God's providence by throwing a party when there was danger all around them. They dared God's providence. Now they dare God by bringing that which God calls holy into their drunken party and using it in a profane way. A further dare of God in desecrating what God had called holy. Why is Belshazzar not challenging any other of the gods of the nations? For example, why isn't he challenging the gods of the Medes and the Persians who are outside the walls of Babylon? Why is he challenging the one true living God and the vessels that were brought from the temple there in Jerusalem? Why is he doing so? Well, I would submit to you that polytheism, the worship of many gods, that was the practice of the heathen nations, tolerated the honor of one another's gods. They may believe their god was supreme, but they tolerated uh, the respect and honor of other nations' gods. But what was different about the God of the Jews was that the God of the Jews tolerated no other gods. The God of the Jews said, this is the one true religion and you are not to compromise, you are not to worship any other God. The God of the Bible and the religion of the Bible is exclusive. It's not inclusive. For example, in Exodus 20, verse 4, the very first of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that doesn't simply mean in a hierarchy before me. Before me means in my presence. Thou shalt have no other gods in my presence. Isaiah Chapter 43, verse 10 says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. There's only one true living God. Any other God is a false God. God is saying, there was no other God formed before me. Contrary to, again, Mormonism, which teaches that there's a succession of gods. And uh, we're simply, at this particular point in time, we have uh, this world or this earth's gods, uh, God reigning over it. Uh, but there are gods in others, other planets, that gave birth to the God that rules over this particular world. Uh, but God says, there are no gods before me, none before me, none after me. I am the one true living God. This is an exclusive, exclusive God, not a, not a God who includes every other religion. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. 
You see, that's what's hated most about biblical Christianity. It's exclusivity. It's narrowness. You see, there is a biblical sense in which we are called to be narrow-minded. Jesus speaks of a, a broad way in Matthew 7 and a narrow way. A broad way that many people, most people walk on, which leads to destruction. But he also speaks of a narrow way, which few people walk on, which leads to ever, everlasting life. It's not good to be on the broad road, which leads to destruction. It's not good to be, in that sense, broad-minded. It is good, according to Jesus, to be narrow-minded, to walk that narrow path, which he has laid out in his word for us. And we need make no apologies at all for that, for we are only as narrow as Jesus was narrow. We are only as narrow as the prophets were. We are only as narrow as the apostles were. It is, dear ones, a curse to fall into the open-mindedness of backslidden churches and, and this culture all around us, which leads to destruction. The farther away from the truth, the church and the culture become I submit to you the greater the attacks that will come our way about us being so narrow. Narrow. Occult. Why? Why do those attacks come? Because, again, we've chosen by God's grace to commit ourselves to following the narrow path of Jesus Christ. Understand about these vessels that were brought at this feast, Belshazzar, that these vessels that came from the temple were not holy in themselves. They were of gold, they were of silver. Um, they were not holy as if there was something in the material itself that was holy. They were rather holy because they were set apart by God to be used for his own holy purposes and not to be used in some drunken stupor at a feast like this. You see, in the Old Testament, that which is called holy was that which God said was to be set apart unto him for a holy use. For example, uh, the temple in the Old Testament was called holy, as was the priesthood. As were the sacrifices, as was the altar, as was the Sabbath day, as were the feast days appointed by God. One will find in each of those cases that they were called holy, set apart, not to be used as common and as ordinary, but set apart for God's particular use. And likewise, when we come to the New Testament, the scriptures are called holy in Romans 1-2. Our bodies, which are offered as living sacrifices, are called holy in Romans 12-1.
Christ's church is called holy. In 1 Corinthians 3.17, our covenant children are called holy and set apart unto God in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. Christ's ministers are called holy in Ephesians 3, 5. Brothers and sisters in Christ are called holy in Hebrews 3, 1 and other places. Heaven is called a holy place in Hebrews 9.12. And the Christian faith is called holy in Jude, verse 20. Many things that God has devoted to a holy use, and which, again, we profane. We profane by treating that which is holy as common and as ordinary. That's what it means to profane God's name. It simply, it doesn't necessarily mean that we curse God. That certainly is to profane God and his name, but to profane means that we treat that which God calls holy as something common and ordinary, as if it's no big deal as if we don't have to worry about it. It's just like anything else that we might have or treat or do in this world every day. But God says that which he calls holy is to be treated as holy. And we follow, dear ones, in the footsteps of Belshazzar when he profaned what is holy rather than using what God called holy for holy purposes. We follow in his footsteps. The final dare, so there are two dares so far on the part of Belshazzar. He dared God's providence. He dared God's holy things, things that God called holy. But the third dare brought by Belshazzar is a very direct dare against God Almighty in that he praises and he worships the false gods of Babylon made of gold, of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. In verse 4. Do you see how the challenges of and the dares of Belshazzar are progressive? They start with challenging God's providence. That they don't need God's protection. They have the walls of Babylon. It starts there by daring God with his providence. And then it moves to the things which God calls holy. And by way, again, of our misusing those holy things, the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, the word of God, uh, one another and how we treat one another. All of these things, when we use them in a profane way, that's the next step. And then it finally issues forth in a very direct attack against God himself as they worship all of these false 
gods. Dear ones, let us not dare and challenge God on any of these points, whether providence or the things he calls holy, his commandments, his word, or him, he himself. Let us not challenge him. Let us, dear ones, not have to learn the hard way through the rod, but help us, our God, to learn the easy way through the word. The second main point, Almighty God crashes Belshazzar's drunken party, verses 5 through 9. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. The king cried out or cried aloud to bring in the astrologers the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. So while Belshazzar and all those princes, wives, concubines, were profanely mocking Almighty God at this drunken party, God crashes the party. The hand of a man appears and the fingers of the hand write on the wall a message for Belshazzar. Whether the fingers held a tool or an instrument in writing upon the wall or whether it was written with the fingers, uh, the finger itself, we're not told. Perhaps what's even in a sense, more eerie and scary is there's no body. It's just a hand with fingers. And the message that is left upon the walls, as we see in verse 5. In verse 6, we see that the king's face goes immediately from being red from wine to being white from terror. He begins violently shaking from his waist down to his knees. Verse 6. Belshazzar then calls for the wise men to come and to interpret the message that has been left behind. But it is written in, apparently in a script uh, that was unknown to any of the wise men so that they could not interpret it, even though they had been promised if they read and interpreted the message, they would be made the third in command. After Nabonidus the king, then Belshazzar, they would be beneath uh, 
the king and his son. <clears throat> Once again, we see, as we've seen before, the wisdom of this world is shown to be foolishness. You remember back in Daniel 2, the, the dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great image? He first called for his wise men to interpret it. They couldn't interpret they couldn't tell him what the dream was, nor could they interpret it. And Daniel came and gave the dream and the meaning of it. Likewise, in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great tree that is cut down, he first invites all of the wise men of Babylon and once again shows the foolishness of worldly wisdom uh, that they cannot interpret the dream, but God brings Daniel in and Daniel interprets the dream and once again, here, before Babylon falls, there is this handwriting on the wall that the wise men that are called, first of all, cannot understand and they cannot interpret, but which then uh, Daniel is called, as we will see, God willing, next Lord's Day. And he reads and interprets the meaning of those words. The Apostle Paul says this, <clears throat> I think illustrating this very point in 1 Corinthians 3.19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The so-called wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, and God shows that to be the case in each of these instances. Why would we therefore, dear ones, seek out the wisdom of the worldly, in order to know how to deal with struggles that we are facing, trials that we are facing in our life, when we have the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ and in his written word, why would we go to the, the so-called wisdom of the world, which God says he makes foolishness, rather than to his, himself, to his holy word, Colossians 2.3 says concerning Jesus, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in Proverbs 2.6, we read, For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth, and which is recorded in his word, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, in all wisdom. We need to be, again, not less filled with God's word, but more filled. We need to, to understand, we need to have God's word uh, continually purifying, sanctifying, increasing uh, our mind in knowledge and understanding and wisdom. That's what we need more of. Not to go to the worldly, to be able to figure out, uh, again, the struggles, the trials that we're facing in our life. Belshazzar is left in this great upheaval of mind, disappointed, to say the least, the fact that his so-called wise men can do nothing. He's left there without hope of understanding this message that was written upon the wall that was delivered to him in such a terrifying and ominous way 
in verse 9. This could not be good news for Belshazzar. Even though he did not know the meaning of that message at this point, it could not be good news for Belshazzar because he was shaking to the very core of his being. No one could tell him what it meant. We'll stop there, but I do have just some application before we close this Lord's Day. First point of application. God is always present to hear and to see in our lives, even when he is not invited. He is always present to see and to hear. He doesn't have to be invited. He crashes because he's God. He crashes our parties. He crashes the times when we think we're all alone and no one else sees. He crashes those times because he's God. You see, that truth terrifies the unbeliever who does not want to be accountable to such a God, but is nevertheless accountable to such a God. But it is among the greatest comforts to the believer. You see, the believer in Jesus Christ wants to be known, wants to be searched out by God by the God who made us, by the God who loves us, by the God who has redeemed us. The believer doesn't have that kind of slavish fear of God. He does have the fear of God, which we'll mention in just a moment, a biblical fear of God. But he calls for God because God has shown such love and mercy. He calls upon God to crash, as it were, all of his parties, to crash all of his thoughts, to crash all of his words, to crash all of his deeds, because he wants to be known by the Lord and wants to walk in faithfulness and holiness to the Lord. A second application. When God brings providential danger trials, and hardships upon us. Dear ones, it's not a time to drown our fears, our cares, and our anxieties with booze, with drugs, with parties, with pleasure, or even with mere busyness. Though, again, it's good to be diligent in work and to be busy, but when we're trying to merely drown our fears by means of busyness, then it's no different than trying to drown our fears and our anxieties by way of alcohol or parties or what Belshazzar was doing. But rather, dear ones, when danger, trials, hardships come our way, it's rather a time to be humbled before God through confession of our sin to fall upon the mercy of God that is in Christ Jesus in prayer, whether privately or with friends, to go to the Lord in prayer. 
It's a time to gain wisdom. It's a time to gain encouragement from God's word. And in those very trying times, most trying times, it's a time to fast. Israel was going through a very, very difficult time in Joel. And Joel quotes the Lord God in verses 12, uh, Joel 2, verses 12 through 13, by saying, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth them of the evil. Not a time to party when heavy trials come our way in our lives, individual lives, our families, our marriages, our nation. It's a time not to cover and to drown ourselves in all the things of this world, but rather a time to go to the Lord. A third application. Paul calls Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, calls Esau in Hebrews 12, 6, 16, a profane person, a profane person, because he sold his birthright for an earthly meal to satisfy his present hunger. He did not count or weigh out the value of the great blessing that his birthright was from God. It was not just an earthly blessing, it was also a spiritual blessing, but he did not count it important. He counted it less important than satisfying temporary hunger. Let us, dear ones, not treat the blessings from God, that which he calls holy, as common and ordinary and profane the name of God or is that which we can trade away uh, for some earthly benefit let us not treat Christian parents as something common and ordinary or Christian grandparents as something common or ordinary let us not treat as common and ordinary and therefore profane the name of God by treating faithful church officers as common and ordinary or treating holy brethren as common and as ordinary or treating the gospel of Jesus Christ as common and as ordinary that has rescued and saved us for all eternity or treating the, the commandments of God the holy commandments of God is something common or ordinary. The last application. Our God is, dear ones, to be feared. That means God is to be taken seriously. He's to be taken seriously and he's to be treated with the greatest reverence. He's to be taken seriously in the promises that he makes to us, that we don't just Say, oh, who cares about those promises? 
no big deal. Or his commandments, his warnings are to be taken seriously, not to just brush them aside. That's to fear God. A Christian is a God-fearing child, a God-fearing man, a God-fearing woman. That's a Christian. One cannot be a Christian and not be a God-fearing person, taking God seriously. Any other view, dear ones, is simply playing games with God. Almighty God, as did Belshazzar, was playing games with God. Even the hand of God writing upon a wall did not lead Belshazzar to repentance. May the Lord humble us and may we flee to the mercy of God that is in Jesus Christ where there is alone forgiveness, where there is alone righteousness, where there alone there is alone hope of eternal life. Let us flee to the mercy of God. If we are truly taking God seriously, if we truly fear him, our response will be to flee to his mercy. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Holy Father, we thank Thee that Thou hast shown to us uh, from <clears throat> this example of Belshazzar how we can fall into the trap of uh, challenging and daring Thee in Thy providence, in that which Thou dost call holy, and in Thee challenging Thee face to face. Lord, we pray, deliver us from such foolishness, for it will not end well for us. Help us, our Lord, to, to have that reverential fear of thee, to take thee seriously, to flee to thy mercy, thy love, thy tenderness, and, Lord, to, to trust in thy promises and to honor thy commandments. We pray, our Lord, cleanse us and wash us of all profanity in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, wherein we take that which thou dost call holy and treat it as, as common and as ordinary. Hear our prayers, our Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.